The following is brought to you with no commercial interruptions. Listen now. I'm I'm not good at this, or I'd have my own podcast. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> I have my own podcast, and I at times don't think I'm good at this. So. <laughs> well, let me tell you that you are definitely good at this. Oh well, thanks. Oh, at least I'm good with the editing. Yeah. I got that. <laughs> That's the that's the that's the part I'm confident with the actual talking to people and thinking think, thinking of things to say is you know the the part where I don't have as much confidence. But well, I I always like you know there's three or four podcasts that I listen to regularly, and this is one of them. And like you know the other ones are professional broadcasters and crap like that with like studios, yeah, NPR and crap, yeah, with like studios and stuff. And I don't notice any drop off in quality between your stuff and their stuff. So I'd say they're wasting their ass money. <laughs> you hear that? Uh, NPR or Spotify. I don't know who pays for, for podcasts or whatever like that for people to be on, on their things. Yeah. Ringer <laughs> podcast network. Barstool Sports is that one or something? Uh, that's not one of the ones I listen to. So, yeah, that's totally one. You can severely underpay me, and I'll I'll put, I'll definitely put in the work. <laughs> yeah, why pay a professional when you can get an amateur to do it for free? Yeah, that's, that's just like college football, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to season six, episode seventeen of the Better Band Podcast. An all-encompassing trip through every song in the Pearl Jam catalog. I am your host, Brandon Palomo. Each episode, a different guest and I go track by track through every album, soundtrack, single, and b-side to discover why you simply can't find a better band. Welcome back to the Better Band Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon. Today, we're taking a look at the hidden track from Binaural, dubbed Writer's Block. And our guest today, coming back again and again and again, friend of the show, which I'm contractually obligated to refer to him as, That's right. Kevin Lassard. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm not just a friend to Brandon, and I'm not just a friend to this podcast, but I'm a friend to each and every one of you as well. So welcome, friend. Oh. <laughs> welcome back, Bucket. If you don't listen to the podcast, How Did This Get Played? Then you don't understand that reference. Which I don't, but I'm going to laugh along anyway. Um, <laughs> Edge. Yeah. That's also a reference. So we've okay. got this um, song, quote yeah, unquote. The track that scared the shit out of me probably a thousand times. <laughs> Did you did you forget that it was coming up or did you just not, uh, um, you know, stop the CD or? Well, the, the first time, um, as I've already mentioned on an earlier track, I got this album on my way home from university mm -hmm. and listened to it in my crappy uh, stereo CD boombox in my van because the radio didn't work in that van. And so I just like had this sitting between the seats in the van. I hit play and was just driving. I was just listening to, you know, listening through it because it, it will um, stop when the CD ends anyway. So, you know, I hear the last track and I'm like, okay, that was, you know, and I'm kind of ruminating on the album and thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, like, clack, 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 clack. What the? <laughs> what the hell is that? I think I've got like a flat tire or something. Like I'm... <laughs> 
So yeah. Um, and then you'd think I would have learned my lesson, but no, every time I just like listened to Binaural all the way through and I just kind of like let the silence hang in the air after the last track, after parting ways. And then all of a sudden, clack, 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 clack. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, probably about a thousand times this track has scared the living crap out of me. And I'm sure I'm not the only, well, I hope I'm not the only person that was <laughs> frightened by this track. I would hope someone else out there had the same experience as me. Yeah, so it um, begins almost exactly three minutes after the end of Parting Ways. Uh, as you're as you're listening to Parting Ways, it's going to start at six minutes forty nine seconds. That is correct. Yeah, Parting Ways fades out and ends somewhere around three minutes forty seven, three minutes forty eight. So it's it's almost exactly three minutes after the end. It's 28 seconds long, and it is pretty clearly just presumably Ed, but somebody typing on a typewriter, hitting a return key, and then continuing to type on the typewriter. Yes, it's going to be a Torpedo Model 18B typewriter, I believe, is... um. That's the typewriter that was introduced on this album as in the liner notes um, that is carried on through uh, onto Riot Act and coming back in Gigaton and also on ukulele songs, a kind of curly looking type on there. I don't know if if maybe his other his original typewriter that he had been using crapped out. Um, so it could be that as well, but I know that this specific model, let me look up real quick as I clean this up and see what his other typewriter is. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what the original typewriter that he's used in the, uh, I think there's uh, one thing in 10 that's got it, but I know that in Versus is where it really got in there, mm -hmm. but I, I know that um, at some point that typewriter crapped out on him. Possibly a uh, 1940s Smith Corona Sterling, but um, yeah, the the torpedo is the new one, well, quote unquote, new one that he started using around this album too. So I don't know if um, if that's the one you specifically hear on this or not. Um, it is included on the vinyl though, not just a CD, unlike uh, Hummus, Hummus from Yield, which uh, we, which we talked about too. You can go back and listen to that. That's continuity there, people. Hummus. That's right. <laughs> I'm your hidden track expert. And so there's, there's um, yeah, you hear, you hear the, the, the keys. And then there's also some, I don't know if it's like sort of ambient road noise or, yeah. or something else. I, I presumed um, maybe falsely that it was some effects put on the audio in post, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a, a little bit of reverb, some uh, just like a little bit of distortion. Because I, I actually listened to it really close to try to figure out if it was a binaural recording. Mm -hmm. And I might my mind might have been playing tricks on me, but I felt like there was a little bit of, of phase beat between the two ears, which would indicate that it is binaural. Mm -hmm. say you know i i could totally be tricking myself on that and it could just be a single microphone on a typewriter 
in a hallway. Yeah, and and also, I mean, a typewriter, you're not going to get, you know, <laughs> a real stereo effect. It's not right. like the the keys on the right hand are going to you're going to hear that over to the to the right and the keys yeah. on the left hand, you're going to hear that over to the left. It's, you know, it's right there in front of you I, I would have really been tempted to pan this out if i <laughs> if i had been the engineer i would have just like totally yeah so it, it could just have the been something where ed was like hey put the head right in front of the typewriter i'm gonna mm -hmm. you know yes and, and and if you have the pearl jam anthology tab book there is no tab for it <sighs> it's not really an anthology then is it yeah i mean <laughs> But I well, guess if you if you if you bust out the um the lyric book the the tab could be J F M F J F M J F J F M J F can I do you think I I I I would read this whole thing in this uh yeah <laughs> maybe I'll put a hidden track Are you just reading of all this, of it uh... <laughs> so so presumably yeah. the, the J F M F is obviously uh, a prescient reference to the live on four legs podcast and. John Farrar, motherfucker. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could, it, it could it could be, you know, the keys started going out and those were the ones that were working. And mm -hmm. there's lots of speculation. Right. Well, that would lend itself to your your broken typewriter conspiracy theory that this is actually the old typewriter and that the last three functioning keys were J, mm -hmm. F, M and F. So the song is called, quote unquote song, is uh, it's called Writer's Block. And um, Ed has had bouts of it uh, throughout Pearl Jam's career. I believe uh, Vitology and uh, No Code, mm -hmm. there was some uh, Writer's Block going around there. But then uh, with Binaural, it's been said that this was his, his worst yep. bout yep. of it at the time. And so he put a little totem of it on this record yeah, he actually said that, and I'm sure that that uh, you've already I've not heard the the soon forget podcast yet, but I'm sure as these listeners have that they've already talked about that you guys have already talked about the story of of soon forget and that he had banned himself from playing guitar so that he would focus on lyrics. And that's why he picked up a ukulele. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> Let me write that down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was I mean. He was really open, was Ed, in, in interviews about this album, about his dealing with writer's block and not just so much not coming up with lyrics, but coming up with multiple versions of different lyrics to different songs and not being satisfied with any of them. Mm -hmm. And it does make me wonder, you know, things like the song Sad that was originally titled Letters, Letter to the Dead, whether that was lyrically a completely different song that he just scrapped that and wrote some different lyrics too or yeah it could it could also be possibly one of the reasons why in the original track listing for this album um there was you know other songs on there that were that eventually were culled from it and found their way onto b-sides and lost dogs and stuff um and but god's dice wasn't on there uh possibly jeff wrote the music and ed couldn't come up with words so mm -hmm. maybe jeff then came up with words to put to it and they and they were able to get it recorded mm -hmm. and in time to put on the album yeah it would have been a binaural would have been an interesting album to be a fly on the wall in the studio and just kind of watching the process of not not just dealing with a new drummer in the studio but also dealing with writer's block and the new dynamic from yield and i think that that this track that writer's block is kind of a like their inside joke about how that process went 
Yeah, and of course, as I've uh, mentioned throughout the season, it would uh, just hoping, wishing one day to hear a fully binaural mix of this album mm-hmm. before uh, before Brendan O'Brien came on and stereo mixed the uh, the harder songs on this. Yeah, that would be cool to get if those original tracks even. I assume that would have been tape, or would they have already been digital by 1999? I think in the, in the studio they were always they had always been using tape, but I I I believe that they they had the binaural microphone and they had everything individually mic'd as well as sort of like a, a backup and to mm-hmm. to sort of uh, sweeten some of the mix in there as well if they needed to. So I mean it's those right. those original takes that uh, that were just taking those tracks the individual tracks and mixing it in stereo instead of using the uh, the binaural mic track or stuff that would be a cool thing to get at some point it's a reason to keep your fan club subscription up to date yeah i guess even though you know you find out most news nowadays from just the internet and stuff but uh yeah writer's block it kind of reminds me and and the typewriter specifically kind of reminds me of um the ray bradbury his writing book zen in the art of writing saying that he had to pay something like 40 cents a day or something like that to to use the typewriter at the library or something like that when he was writing his books and sort of like okay i knew that i had you know this specific amount of time and i had to do my writing then so i couldn't really deal with having writer's block or anything like that i had to get it out because you know this was costing me money and the only way that i could make the money is getting this done it is crazy to think of a professional author as renting the use of a typewriter at a local library. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, not everybody, you know, I, I think that, you know, at, at the time that he was doing it, he probably wasn't a professional professional. And I think even then, like professionals weren't sort of like, oh, you know, I can do all this myself and, you know, I have my own typewriters and everything and I can do that. It's kind of, you know, just a working guy, you know, working freelance or whatever, kind of, okay, I got to make some money here doing this other stuff, but then, you know, writing articles or doing this sort of uh, work for hire work. And then, but I really got to write this book because I got something in me that I, I want to get out there. And, yeah. you know, this is how I'm going to make my name, make my, uh, make my living break out on I the scene. I suppose I can with... see that. I just, coming from a more technical profession, it sounds to me like a guy who is a professional auto mechanic, but borrows the tools from the high school shop. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I have no idea what... <laughs> the cost would have been to to have that i mean like even now you know electric typewriters or you know laptops and all that sort of stuff i mean that's the closest thing that we have comparatively and they're not cheap yeah yeah you know not cheap especially if you're you know trying to break in or whatever like that and i mean especially if you're you're just coming from zero to do that Mm -hmm. without you know having other people help you or being able to scam your way into getting a credit card or whatever (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's like a, a cheapo laptop that would be difficult to write anything professionally on is what, 400, 500 bucks? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then, I mean, to get something that would be nice to use would be easily a thousand. And it's, you're probably inflation wise looking at about the same cost for any kind of decent used typewriter back in the day because it was a, a complicated mechanical piece of equipment. Yeah. As you can hear on the track writer's block. <laughs> And then if it breaks, you know, it's <laughs> not something you can just uh, fix yourself, possibly. I mean, there's years and whatever. I don't know. All right. Or or take it down to Best Buy and have the, the Geek Squad look at it. That's not good. Yeah, or you, you've got the uh, the Apple Care on it and just trade it out. But um, mm-hmm. 
the concept of writer's block to me always, I don't know, kind of hits me as amateurish because I mean, there, there are going to be days where you don't feel like writing. There are going to be days when you don't really have anything in mind to start with. But if you're going to be disciplined and, you know, this is how I make my living, this is what I do, you know, you go into the office every day, you do whatever, you know, you're supposed to do. Maybe your boss tells you what to do. You know, chances are, you know what you're supposed to do and you just go ahead and you go do that. I mean, it's it's the same thing. And possibly people, you know, if it kind of seems alien to some people who don't have creative avenues for their, you know, for their profession, kind of like, oh, I don't know how they do that. I don't know how you do that. It's, you know, how do you come up with ideas? What do you do? And, and sort of it takes, you know, you don't start off being able to, you know, write every day or write songs every day or whatever. It's kind of something you, you have to, to work at. And it's X percent inspiration x percent perspiration or whatever you know it's you have to work at training your mind and your brain to accessing that creative part no matter if you feel like doing it or not it's sort of like okay i put on my tie i'm ready to do it you know the same thing with your brain it's like okay i'm sitting down ready to write and let's go right and you 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 end up doing it and i don't know if it's um seems less romantic or less creative or anything like that to to some people was kind of like oh no you gotta have the inspiration hit yeah no i was never i i never believed that i always assumed it was a process writing um at least like the the brief period of my life when i was writing a lot of songs Mm -hmm. it was a process like i just you know committed myself to sitting down and finding words that rhymed or fit together or expressed an idea that i was trying to to express and i never i can't say never i occasionally felt that kind of hand of god you know like like something else divine inspiration sort of yeah i i bolt from the blue yeah i occasionally felt that but for the most part it was for me more of a well, you know, I know this rhythm and I know this melody that I want to reach. And so I have this many syllables and I need these ideas to be expressed. And it was just kind of putting together words, and trial and error. And that's where I feel like, like what I assume what Ed is talking about based on, on interviews that I've read about this album and about his bouts with writer's block in general, it was not so much a, you know, he's sitting around waiting for divine inspiration. He sits down and nothing comes. A lot of it and he actually said, I can't remember where I read this interview exactly, that it wasn't that he didn't have any lyrics for these songs. It's that he had lyrics and he didn't think they were any good. So I, I feel like what he's calling writer's block is actually just holding holding his own output to a higher mm-hmm. standard than he was meeting at that point. And I think especially to coming from Yield, which a lot of people said is was you know a return to form and everything like that and now you've got a new drummer a new producer you're sort of uh reaching the end of their contractual obligations to epic and sony it's sort of like you know we're the last 90s band left and this is our first album of Mm -hmm. the of the new millennium what's what what do we have to say what are we what are we gonna do are we gonna you know, kind of keep looking back at mm-hmm. where we had been and try to remake 10 or verses or something like that, or, you know, do what we always have done and try to bring people to where we are now. Yeah, the angsty, introspective teen market had sort of gone away on them. And they had, to, and they weren't that anymore anyway. Like they were, they were adults. They were 
in their 30s. You know, some of them had kids and yeah. jobs and were dealing with real life. Well, it, I mean, job, they were musicians, but <laughs> <laughs> it's still a job. <laughs> yeah, but they, they, Ed specifically, as, as one of the chief lyric writers, had to kind of find new things to express. And I, as, like I say, as someone who wrote songs, I can relate to that and that a lot of my early songs were about my in one way or another about my lack of female companionship as a young man mm -hmm. and once that became a consistent part of my what of my life with my girlfriend and eventually wife i found that it wasn't that i couldn't write it's that i didn't have anything that i felt was really pressing to say anymore yeah you're you're and oh, sure sorry, i can keep going yeah i mean sure i could sit down and write a song about something but it because I it wasn't a job for me, I didn't feel the need to do that. And it wouldn't have been as good as something that I felt strongly about. Yeah. You know, your life changes. And so then your the experience you're drawing from, the things you see around you change as well. So it's sort of like, you know, you're younger, you're, you know, pining away, your hormones are, you know, doing their thing and stuff like that. And, you know, if you finally have a partner or something like that, your your life changes in that way too. And so it's sort of like, you know, what do I have to say about that? Or, you know, do people want to hear about that? And also you could have, you know, relationships falling apart too. So that's a different sort of uh, avenue to approach things from. Is kind of like, ah, do I want to air this dirty laundry or whatever? Or kind of what do I have to say about that or what do people expect from from me as well so I feel like it's like as much as the standard issue writer's block of sitting down at a typewriter and having nothing to, to write I think you might be right that that's almost sort of amateurish because it implies it is almost definitionally am amateurish because it implies an idea about writing as a profession that there's no work in it mm -hmm. that you just sit down and it comes to you. And if you sit down and it doesn't come to you, then you must have writer's block. Yeah. Yeah. But if you approach it from the idea of, well, no, this is a job. And I know that what I have to do is sit down and, and go through this process to make this creative thing. There's still inputs into that, that you need to be there. You need to have something worth saying and you need to have enough passion about that to go through what is actually a really rigorous and difficult process of crafting that into art. Yeah. And a, and a lot of times too, it's, you know, the, I know the, uh, the improv saying, you know, first thought, best thought, but I mean, that's sort of trying to come up with something in the moment, something that's ephemeral, something that's going to disappear as soon as you, you know, step off the stage and stuff like that. But, you know, committing something to record or to the page and stuff like that, that's something where, okay, the first thought may not be the best thought, but it could also, you know, lead you into a direction you want to go. It could, you know, inspire something down the line. It could be something that doesn't fit here, but maybe fits somewhere else. It's, you know, at, at that point, the inspiration is the first step. And then whittling it down, yeah. editing, you know, refining are all the steps that follow that get you to mm -hmm. your destination. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know that, that I've, you know, in my younger days, I don't know, probably 10, 10 years now. Oh, yeah, probably been about 
over 10 years or whatever that I've written books that I, you know, one I didn't think was worthy of getting published. And then another one that's kind of like, oh, I, I tried for a while and then gave up on that. But I mean, it was just sort of like, you know, this is something I want to do. So, you know, try every day and mm-hmm. damn dog. In the beginning, it's sort of hard, but then, you know, I trained my brain. It's like, okay, got it. Open up the page. Boom. Okay. I can start going and just do it and everything like that. And then knowing it's like, okay, I got this done or whatever. Now I got to go back and refine it and find the good things. And it's like, oh, wait, oh, I should have expanded on this a little bit. Or it's like, oh, this has no business being here. And I got to got this out because it's not good and I can do better and sort of uh, uh, like, exercising or working out, you know, the same thing for your brain of, you know, getting into the, the groove of making it work that way of, of like, okay, I have thoughts in my head and I'm, this is how I'm going to write it. And this is the style I'm going to do. And this is how I know it's going to be good and how it's going to be better. And I know to avoid these other things that aren't going to be as good. And sometimes I got to be okay with, you know, just having crap and just having placeholders because I know that I don't want to be stuck here trying to figure out how to work through it. I got to put something here. I got to put a bandaid on it so that it can, uh, it can heal. And so I can come back to it and, uh, properly dress this wound or whatever. Yeah. That process of self editing is something that that's learned of going through and rereading and seeing stuff that's bad. So that after several times of doing that, as you're writing it, you can sort of go through that editing process of what you've just written and almost edit as you're as you're putting it down because you already know that, oh, if I write this like this, that I'm going to read it later and not like that. Or if I am reaching this sort of idea that I need to expand on that as I'm writing so I don't have to go back and do it later. Yeah. And also, you know, having songs and writing them and kind of performing them for a while and stuff like that, you could get kind of bored with it and kind of like, hey, you know, what if we played it like this? It's like, oh, hey, yeah, that's pretty cool. And, you know, you kind of get a little bit more investment in it and then... Mm -hmm. And then, I don't know, people maybe don't like it. So you just go back to the original yeah. way of playing it. Kind of a subtweeting garden or something. <laughs> right. But that's also the the advantage of like us as a band. And sometimes I was you know young and really kind of heard about this process. But in the end, it was good for me as a songwriter to get that feedback from you guys. Because within our band, I felt like we were all sort of empowered to write and to be critical about what others other people had written. And I feel like that's why people say that, oh, you know, Yield saved Pearl Jam because of that process of empowering the band outside of Eddie to be critical, to to give that feedback and to be part of the creative process. Mm-hmm. And, and, and still he ended up mashing a typewriter at the end of this album. Yeah. And scaring the crap out of me <laughs> out of 28 seconds of a typewriter. <laughs> See, who could have ever thought you can get this much out of this song? Yeah. Again, I I, I know that uh, I said it back in the, uh, I, I think I said it back in the uh, the Yield season. I don't know, since it's been so long since uh, we did that, talking about the, uh, the color red. <laughs> it's like, who, you know, who else out there is spending this much time talking about a hidden track that's just typewriter keys? Well, this is, I feel like we talked about professionalism and, and following the process. And this is, this masterpiece of a podcast is a culmination <laughs> of a long process. There's hours of research, of, of talking to each other beforehand, oh, yeah, yeah. of working things out. And 
I hope that some of your thousands and thousands of listeners <laughs> appreciate, you know, how much effort you really do put into to getting these out and how deeply researched all of these topics are. I mean, there's hardly any editing in these because you're you're such a, a professional with the broadcast side of I it. I have all of my records out right in front of me, ready to go when I need to look something up and I don't have to go into another room or dig them out right. of boxes. This is, this is <laughs> why you do these podcasts inside of your archive room. Ah, uh, comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I, I, I think we've uh, we've reached the natural conclusion, as of course you would, knowing after doing my ten thousand hours of podcasting and being an expert at this, I know that we've reached the end. We've reached the last F key. Yes, and so uh, now we we wrap this up as I always do. But of course, this is the Pearl Jam thirty sort of year, and I've uh, you know already had you on to ask you what Pearl Jam means to you, and and now I think that since we we have you back, I think we should look ahead, and I'm going to end this by asking you, what do you think the future days of Pearl Jam will look like? Um. Well. It depends on how far into the future you want to talk. I mean, I think they have carved out a, I mean, they've always sort of leaned towards the classic rock uh, model of just continuing to put out new material and tour on it and be a touring band. And that's where you make your money. The sort of Rolling Stones model of continuing to be a relevant band, relevant being again in air quotes. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't feel like we're going to see a change from that. I don't think the that I don't feel like the burden of Pearl Jam is ever going to be heavy enough for them to actually call it quits. Um, I think that that the gap between Lightning Bolt and Gigaton is the model for what we can expect, that it's not that they will quit, you know, or announce an end to Pearl Jam. It's just that they if they don't feel like doing it, they're just not going to do it until they do feel like doing it. And then they're going to release another album and everyone's going to be happy. And I think that that cycle and whatever that interval is, is probably going to be variable over the, over the years. But mm -hmm. I feel like that cycle can literally just play itself out until one of them leaves us in the, in the real sort of pet cat going to cat heaven way. <laughs> and I mean, that's, I mean, you know, the Fight Club quote uh, on a long enough timeline, everyone's survival rate is zero. Mm -hmm. That's true, unfortunately, for our musical idols also. And that's I mean, if you look far enough in the future, that's the future of Pearl Jam. That's the future of Kevin and Brandon and and everybody. But I do think that there is an immortality in the art that they've contributed. And I don't think that that will ever go away. And I think that there will be generations from now that just just as there's always some new kid that picks up a, a George Gershwin record or hears Mozart for the first time or hears Pete Townsend's opening riff to Bob O'Reilly, like there's there's always going to be someone who finds Pearl Jam for the first time. And I think that that's really their future days. Well said, Kevin. Thanks. Thanks for giving me the heads up to think about that answer also. <laughs> Wait, is that is that sarcastic or is that true? That's because I told you about uh, it before we start. Okay, that's good. true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, Kevin, it's good as always having you on and and talking to you and you know not and, and, and talking to and not yeah. having the podcast have anything to do with that as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I I actually um, we can end this first, then talk about this afterwards. But I always I always just like talking to old friends. Yeah. I mean, I'm I guess I guess we're that age now where we're the old guys who get together and and talk about our good old days and i can see the appeal in that yeah so it's it's great catching up with you and uh all my best to you know your family and and all my best to all my podcast friends out there in the (laughs) pearl jam podcast universe the better band podcast is produced by listenupreno.com and brandon palomo and published using a creative commons attribution share alike 4.0 license please visit creativecommons.org or email listenupreno at gmail.com for more details. All music played is owned by the respective publishers and copyright holders and is reproduced for review purposes only under fair use. You can subscribe to the Better Band Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or from betterbandpod.com using your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Better Band Pod. I'm on Twitter at Brandon P. B-R-A-N-D-E-N-P. If you like the job I'm doing here, you can go to ko-fi.com slash Brandon P and leave me a $3 tip or give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to tell your friends. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, send an email to betterbandpod at gmail.com or send any insights and stories you'd like to share and I'll read them on next week's season finale episode. Again, I'd like to thank my guest Kevin and as always, this is Brandon saying... You know, my kids think you're the greatest, and thanks to your gloomy music, they finally stopped dreaming of a future I can't possibly provide.